Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be able to gather to open the scriptures. I want to invite you this morning as we begin to open up your Bibles, if, if you have a Bible with us, uh, with you, uh, to open up in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be talking about love this morning. We're going to eventually land in this passage. Um, but we're, we're, for the next few weeks, going to be talking about some kingdom living principles. Or as, as uh, Pastor Tom and I were talking the other day, he phrased it well, principles of living with the king. What, what does it mean to walk in a dynamic relationship with Jesus. And we're going to be talking about love this morning, how love is the greatest gift. You could say maybe the love is the greatest fruit. I renamed my sermon again last night because truth be told, I hate naming sermons because as soon as I come up with a name, I tell our office staff, here's the name, and then I want to change it because I find something I like better. Um, So last night, I I renamed it again, How to Love a Buzzard, um, because yesterday we had an incredible movie go on in our backyard. Not an actual movie, but we had a couple of birds in our backyard. We, we had this red-tailed hawk that had a dead animal of some sort, and it's picking at the flesh, and it's like, you know, 50 feet away from us. And then there's two turkey vultures. I just call them buzzards. And they're just kind of hanging nearby, waiting for that last bit of scrap that they can have. So you've got this one hawk that's going to town. You've got these two turkey vultures that are just waiting their time. At one point in time, the hawk goes up into a tree. The, the, uh, the buzzards start inching towards and towards and towards this carcass. And then the red-tailed hawk swoops down and says, no, you're not going to do that. And he basically n- almost knocks him sideways. And eventually he relents. And I was, and I was going, man, that's kind of like us with each other sometimes. I don't mean like me and you or you and each other. I mean just like people, right? Sometimes we look at each other and we think that, man, we're just adversaries. Like, how do we drive people away? How, how do we to territorialize what is ours? And really what comes down to it, I tried to use it as a teaching moment for our family, however imperfectly that happened, perhaps. But, but we're there and we're talking, I'm like, you know, sometimes we treat our siblings like that, don't we? And they're like, yes, dad, sometimes, you know. <laughs> no, they were good sports. How to love a buzzard. What does it mean to love Love is the greatest gift. We're going to talk about love today because when Jesus comes to talk about what it means to be a disciple, he says, you will know this. The world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. One of the markers of discipleship is how we treat one another. And that is affected directly by how we receive the love of God given to us in Christ Jesus. Um, We talked last week about how a disciple is a learner. It's a pupil. It's an apprentice. It's one who desires to become like their teacher. It's not a person who has figured it all out yet. It's a person who is engaged on a journey of what it means to walk with God, what it looks like to have a dynamic relationship with their father. And as a result, 
to love their neighbor as themselves. In fact, when Jesus is asked the greatest commandment, he sums up the whole of Scripture with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second command, he says, is like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that in a world that experiences friction, in a world that experiences disagreement, in a world that experiences all manner of going on? How do we do that? In the scriptures, um, Jesus gives us his, his presence. He gives us the Holy Spirit to walk with us. He also gives us a purpose. We talked about that last week. And part of this purpose, again, is the idea of love. So love is used two different ways, pr- predominantly in scripture. One way it's used is it's used as a verb. So when Jesus says, for example, in, in this passage, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, the, all, the world or all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When he uses the word love here, he's using it as a verb. It's an, it's an active command. It's an active command. And Jesus is actually revealing the Father's heart for people. And, and this is, so this is a, a passage that is dropped into what we just celebrated with all the Good Friday and Easter stuff. Because Jesus gives this word to his disciples as he is getting ready to be betrayed. And he says, I give you new command. Now what's new here? The, the command to love is not a new command. The command to love God, Deuteronomy 6. The command to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. Right? It's an old command, but what's new? He says, he clarifies it to tell us what's new. He says, just as I have loved you. What he's doing is he's giving action to what love looks like. And he's not using any old example. He's using himself. He's saying, as I have loved you, as I have given my life for you, as I have laid down my rights for you, go and love one another. It's going to be that kind of love that is going to tell the world that you are a disciple of me. Jesus is revealing the Father's heart for people, just as I have loved you. So this command, this action is foundational to being disciples, and it's foundational to making disciples, because it's how we are seen in the world. I love the way one writer puts it. He he says... God intends love to be the primary action for disciples of Jesus because it's something that they've experienced. Another writer says, The preeminent sign that the Spirit of God is present and freely operating is love within the the Christian community and through it to the world. Let me read that one again. The preeminent sign that the Spirit of God is present and freely operating is love within the Christian community and through it to the world. So love is always something that we receive It's something we experience from God, but then it goes out then to our family. It goes out to our church family. It goes out then to our neighborhoods. It goes out that next level, and it's by that action, by that receiving and that giving, the world knows that we serve Jesus. But there's another way that love is used. It's used as a noun, okay? So verb, action, noun, person, place, thing, or idea. Um, There's your grammar you know, a little bit for you today. And I love the way that one of my former um, pastors that I got to serve under defined it. Some of you know this definition. Love, Pastor Mike Ferris used to say, 
say something like this, is a decision. All right, so he's, he's defining the noun, but here's how it's described. It's a decision. It's an act of the will to bring to bear all of the resources you have to meet the needs of someone else without expecting anything in return. If we were to give a simple definition of love, this would be a good, simple definition of love. It's a decision, all right? Love, the noun, is a decision. It's an action. It's an act of the will. It's a choice to bring to bear all the resources you have to meet the needs of someone else without expecting anything in return. And when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthian church, he's writing a letter to a group that had love all twisted, There's actually probably at least four letters that go on back and forth between Paul and the Corinthian church. He had spent some time there, and then he continues a ministry of correspondence. And we have two of those letters. One Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is one of those. And his Corinthian ministry was really hard. It was a challenging place to learn to walk out of love. Paul spent some significant time there, and And he engaged with these believers because he wanted them in their Roman context. They're in Greece, but it's a Roman colony. Um, He wanted them in their Roman context to model and to live out what would be a demonstration of God's grace and God's goodness to the world. And that's love. One writer describes the Corinthian community this way. He says, if there is an all-single encompassing problem exhibited by the members of the Corinthian church, discernible in the letter, he says it might be unbridled and arrogant self-promotion. It might be unbridled and arrogant self-promotion. Because one of the things that kills love quickly is self Now, I'm not talking about having a healthy and a biblical view of yourself. Like some some of us here struggle to value ourselves the way that God values us. We always have to have that right. But when we think so much of ourselves that we become more important than the people and the things that God has placed us around, we get things out out of balance. Affection, emotion, self promotion, all these things described the Corinthian view of love. They also describe a lot of the ways that we view love today. If you go and you look at definitions of love, you'll find emotion, you'll find all sorts of ways that, that, don't, that don't land on anything really tangible. They, they become something that it's like jello, trying to nail jello to a wall. It's like, what is it? I don't know. It's whatever I think it is. And God, when he talks about love, Paul here, when he's writing scripture inspired by God, he's going to give some descriptions of what love is so that we have something to nail to the wall. So we know what this noun is. What does it look like practiced in its fullness? So look with me, please, at 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at just a couple of verses from this chapter. Um, Some of this you probably know. If you've been to a wedding, you may have heard this. I I typically don't preach this one at a wedding. I I typically preach... um, the John 13 passage at a wedding. That's, that's one of my favorites to remind couples. But th- this is not written for a wedding. It's written for a way of life within a community. It, it's written for how a congregation of Jesus followers is supposed to engage together. He writes this, verse 1. If I speak human or angelic languages but do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of, gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give or donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not conceited. Does not act improperly. It is not selfish. Is not provoked. And does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness. But it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Pray with me please. Our Father and our King. As we consider these words from Scripture, I ask God that you would be the teacher. I ask God that you would reveal to us how to receive love and how to give love just as we have been loved. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a model, for giving us a picture of what this looks like for our lives today. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to zero in on verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. Um, because here, love, the noun, is being described by other words to describe what, what, what love actually is. So love is patient. Love is kind. Um, these two phrases uh, describe two things that love habitually chooses to do. All right? Two things that love habitually chooses to do, to be patient and to be kind. The, the idea of patience here always describes, William Barclay says, always describes patience with people, not with circumstances. It, it's, it's one thing to be patient with a circumstance, something completely out of your control, something that completely has no one to do with anything else. Paul's talking to people here about people, not just circumstances. And Barclay says, this is describing how we act with people. The fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, once said that this is a word used of those who are wronged and who have it easily in their power to avenge themselves, yet choose not to do it. There are people who exercise, who practice, who intentionally seek to love with patience. When they could allow emotion to rise up, they go to God and they rem they're remembered how God has been patient with them. And they say, Lord, would you help me to be patient? Because that's what love does. That's what love does. It's patient. Love is also kind. You, you could translate the word kind as merciful uh, or, or showing undeserved generosity. It, it's expressing something to someone who does not deserve it, right? Kind isn't just, oh yeah, you're the nice person to, to the people who are nice to you. Kindness has to do with expressing mercy to people who, by all earthly standards, don't deserve it. It's a, it's a word that's actually used in Ephesians chapter 4, when it talks about how God shows his kindness towards us when we were enemies of Christ, it's something that goes beyond just the, oh, be kind to your sister, be kind to your brother, be kind to your spouse, be kind to your friend. Show mercy. Show undeserved generosity. Go the next level to show someone that even though they may be an enemy, you call them a friend. Two things love habitually chooses to do. It chooses to be patient and it chooses to be kind. Elsewhere, Paul talks about how we have gifts that come from the Spirit or fruits that come from the Spirit. A couple of these fruits are, are um, 
the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Love, peace, patience, kindness. All these things are something that the person who expresses them in their life cannot do on their own. They can only do when they're attached in a relationship with the God who has said, can I help this abound in you? Can I cause this to become something in your life that goes beyond every human thought and understanding and experience? Two things love habitually chooses to do, patience and kindness. Verse 4, it talks about how love also how love chooses not to act certain ways. In other words, love is incompatible with these three things. It, it says it's, it's doesn't envy, it's not boastful, and it's not conceited. The word jealous or envy here means to be negative over someone else's achievements or success. To be negative over someone else's achievements or success. Have, have you ever experienced that feeling? Like, oh, they got the starting pitcher spot. Oh, if you're a baseball player. Oh, they got the promotion and I didn't. Oh, they experienced that gift from someone. Jealousy or envy is wanting something that someone else has and just being envious over it or, 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 or being negative over it. Love chooses rather to bless in those cases. To be brag or to brag or to be boastful. Okay, so love chooses not to act jealous or envy. It also chooses not to brag. This refers to an action where you praise yourself. And actually, it refers to the idea of being self sufficient. All right? It's not just saying, I'm the best. That's actually what arrogance is. Bragging is saying, I'm the best and I don't need you. <laughs> um, it's used, it's a word that's used in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians where Paul is actually, he's talking to the church, and he's describing the church as, as like a body. You know, there's parts that are a hand, and there's a foot, and there's a mouth, and there's an ear, and how every person has been gifted by God to do certain things and to engage in a family in a certain way. Paul's making the case, you and I, we were built to be a part of a body, we were not built in, in fashion to be Lone Ranger Christians. In fact, I need you. You need me. For the, for the glory of God and for the furthering of his kingdom, what marks Christians a lot of is their community and how they engage with one another, how they reach out to the people around them. Bragging is saying, I don't need you. I can do this ministry myself. <laughs> I, I can be Jesus over here and, and not be Jesus in like a literal way, but I can be the hands and feet of Jesus. It recognizes that, that we need each other. It's an important reminder for us. You know, verse 21 of chapter 12 says, So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the hand can't say to the feet, I don't need you. To brag is to say, I'm sufficient in myself. Arrogance, however, or conceit, is to have inflated thoughts of one's self-importance and to seek attention without humility. To seek attention without humility. There, there's a character in the, um, the kids' show, Thomas the Tank Engine. Any Thomas the Tank Engine fans in the house? All right, we got a couple. Fantastic. Uh, and I can't remember the character's name. You can help me out if you remember. But there's one who says, I am super important. Is it Spencer? I can't remember. 
There's one of those. And, and, and they're like all about themselves. I am the best train, whatever. I can do anything I want. And this train goes around the whole island of Sodor. And he just proclaims, I am better, I am better, I am better. That's the idea of arrogance. He, this little train um, is inflated with his own self-importance. He, he doesn't seek to serve others. He rather serves to seek the glory of himself. Love chooses not to do that. Love is incompatible with those things. So two things love habitually chooses to do. Patience, kind. Three things love chooses not to do. Jealous, envy, brag, boastful, arrogant, conceited. Verse 5, love also chooses not to act in a couple of other ways. It's not rude. It's, it's not rude. It does not act improperly. The idea behind this is it doesn't seek to bring shame to other people. It doesn't highlight other people's faults. It doesn't pull them into a situation and say, hey, look, I'm going to shame them publicly. It chooses, it chooses to act in a way that brings honor. And that's culturally specific to every context. It also does not choose to be self selfish or self-seeking. You could probably translate it to seek oneself is, is a good translation, a literal translation. And love here. Um, is described in a way, or the opposite of love, is described in a way where when you seek yourself, your desires, my desires, become the center of my life, your life. And, and, and I want what Jeremy wants. In the Gospels, Jesus says this to his disciples. He, he says, I want you to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, Jesus says. What, what's to be the thing we seek is not my desires and, and not even your desires. It's to seek his desires. Because when we seek his desires, all these things are funneled in the right way. Love chooses not to be selfish or to seek oneself. Love is also not um, easily angered or provoked or easily upset. The, you could translate this phrase, um, easily exasperated with people. But, Love, when you see it, it, it it's kind of, this is kind of the opposite of patient. It, it just goes, it's okay. It's okay. Not easily angered, not flying off the handle, not reactionary to a situation. Measuring exactly what that person needs to help them grow in grace. Love also keeps no record of wrongs. Now, the phrase here, keeps no record, it, it's an accountant term, all right? It's an accountant term that was used to describe how logs and records were kept mathematically or in, in a merchant um, context. And so you'd, you'd make sure that you knew where that was so you could go back to that and you could know that, yep, they did that and they did that and they didn't do that. What Paul is saying here is love does not keep a record of the things that have been done wrong to you. It, it keeps a short account this one speaks to me at least because it, it's really easy sometimes to nurse or, or to, to keep wounds close by. Ways in which we've been wrong that are legitimate and, and to keep reliving those things and to keep reliving those things and to bring them up where someone becomes marked by what they've done. God calls us to live at, as much as possible with us at peace with all men. Which means that we deal honestly with things. But it also means that we don't hold things against people. 
It, it also means that we act wisely in situations. It, it doesn't mean that we're blind to ways in which we've been harmed or, or ways in which we've experienced some form of abuse or something like that. It's not, it's not blind to that. But it doesn't seek to keep that over someone and over someone and over someone. This is, um, this is well balanced in the next phrase in verse 6. It says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. P- perhaps for our culture, this is one that we need to remember. The, the phrase unrighteousness here refers to things present in our lives that are not godly. All right? Love does not look at the things that, that are ungodly and say, that's awesome. Love looks at them and it looks at them with truth. It, it looks at them honestly. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in truth. To rejoice in truth means that we have to have our worldview set by God. It it, it means that we have to understand truth as God sees it, not as we see it. The standard is God, not us. Truth here has to do with the content of what is true, especially the content of Christianity as the ultimate truth. Jesus says in John's gospel, he, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus models for you and for me that he is actual truth incarnate. That what he says actually happens. John's gospel elsewhere in chapter 8, it tells us that truth is found in God's word and that by knowing truth, we experience freedom. Freedom sometimes is something that we go, I've got no rules, I can do whatever I want. In biblical terminology, Freedom is always best experienced walking with God. Because it's when we walk with God in truth that we experience, oh, Father, you love me. We, we experience the, the, the revelation of we are not defined by what we do. We are defined by whose we are. But it comes back, coming back to God regularly, the one who is truth helps us to walk in freedom from sin and from bondage and from death. When we desire truth to be relative, when we say, oh, that's my truth or that's your truth, instead of seeking what's God's truth, what we end up doing is we create another box and we create another system that just closes us in and we don't experience the freedom God wants to give us in his spirit. The disciple knows the God who is truth. The God who sets people free to walk without shame and guilt and fear. Because they've experienced and they've received what God has said about them. So love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't find any joy in righteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. Verse 7 says, love in all things, it, it bears, it believes, it hopes, and it endures. You, you could translate it this way. In every way, love bears, believes, hopes, and endures. And there's an interesting, like, Greek linguistic thing going on here. Um, so it's saying love in every way, and there's two things. There's one on the top and one on the bottom, and then two in the middle. 
The one on the top and the one on the bottom, the word bear or the word endure on the bottom, refer to how we respond to a present situation right now. Let love in the present situation, it bears. It does not give in to difficult situations. Um, one writer puts it this way, it, it never caves in to the pressures of the world. It always bears the strain of living in the current reality. It also endures. It, it doesn't give up in a difficult situation. So that's, that has a present mindset to it. The, the two words, believes and hopes, in my translation, that's how they, they, they translate it. Um, they're centering on, it looks to the future to find hope for the present. It focuses on the future, believing and hoping, focuses on the future with an intense trust and hope that enables the person seeking to love, to have endurance and perseverance. And, and the idea here with believing and hoping, it's, it's not about blindly looking at someone who broke trust or looking at a situation through rose-colored glasses. It, it's looking to God who can alone give strength in any context to love someone the way that he loves them. Love is the greatest gift. Love is the greatest gift. Th these words describe what love is. And if we just take a moment, like, we might look at those and say, okay, I know patience. Oh, God, I'm not doing well with that. Kindness. Oh, I'm not doing well. We could probably go through this list. And the Holy Spirit would reveal himself to you and say, here's an area that your love is not perfected in the way I want to do in your life. If there's one that pops to your mind as you're coming through here, just make a note of it. We can look at this list, though, and say, God, I just, I just fall short all the time, right? I, I'm not always patient. I'm not always kind. God, I, I envy. I, I am boastful. I, I'm conceited. <laughs> I sometimes act improperly. And, and you kind of go through all these things. This is the ideal. How do we make the ideal of practicing present reality in our life? Love, I said— is defined by Jesus. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The key to walking out this love is to receiving what God alone can give. When I was growing up, I, my grandparents were involved in marriage encounter weekends. It's kind of like a, a marriage two-day intensive. And they would lead, lead these, and they had this, um, this magnet on the refrigerator that said to love is a decision. So, so there's a decisive act to this, but then there's a resting or, or a dependent act to what it means to love. Because we can't give that which we don't receive. And love is one of those things we can't give unless we receive. Love is a fruit that comes from a gift. We don't have to just merely imagine this kind of love. It's a gift that was demonstrated to us by Christ. And the love of the body of Christ, the love the body of Christ is called to live out, comes from something that we have to experience. We have to experience it. We have to, we have to rest in it. The letter of 1 John tells us that God himself is love. Right? God himself is love. So, you could, in good, in good context here, you could say, coming back to verse 4, 
And, and I want you to receive these words as they are God's letter to you, because that's what they are. Where it says love is patient. If God is love, we can say it this way. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy and he does not boast. He's not conceited. He does not act improperly. God is not selfish. He is not provoked. God does not keep a record of wrongs. God doesn't find joy in unrighteousness, but God rejoices in the truth. In all things, God believes, God hopes, God endures. When we, when we receive these words as God's letter to us, the truth, with the Holy Spirit's help, should begin to sink into how much you and I have been loved. In order to love, we have to know and walk in the truth that we are loved. And I actually, I would argue, the more we walk in the truth that we are loved by God in this kind of radical, powerful way, the more that working of God in us will go from us to the people around us. We can't give what we have not received. The scripture says that when we were enemies of God, when we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. God didn't come to us and say, you've got to measure up before my sacrifice will be sufficient. He said, no, I know that you have no way of going forward. Romans 5 puts it this way. While we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. As I was thinking about this idea of helpless last night, I was reminded about um, 12 years ago, just 12 and a half years ago, when we brought our first kid home from the hospital, right? They give you this small human in this like um, car seat and they're like trusting us with this little life and we're like walking out, we're going, oh my word, what is going on here? An infant marks or bears all the markings of helplessness. They can't eat by themselves. They can't bathe themselves. They can't even smile on day one half the time, right? They, they, they know how to scream. They know how to be utterly dependent. They know how to be helpless because that's exactly how God designed them to be in those days of their life. While we were still helpless, well, there was nothing we could do. Christ died for the ungodly. Some of us, because of our past, we have a picture of God that is not consistent with his word. We look at God as being a, a big guy up in the sky who doesn't care about our circumstances. We, we look at God as being a parent who comes down with the ruler ready to find everything wrong that we've done. We, we look at God as, um, as exacting every bit of perfection from us, just waiting for us to mess up and congratulating us when we do well, but maybe not. Maybe chastising us when we don't. God knows our helplessness. Do we? <laughs> While we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God. All you can do is acknowledge, God, I'm helpless without you. I am like an infant 
completely dependent upon its parents for everything they need. And that image of parent messes with us sometimes because, frankly, some of us here don't have great parents. However we have experienced parenthood in our life, it's not descriptive of how God looks at you. How God looks at you is with these characteristics of love. He stepped in. Verse 7 of Romans 5 says, for, for rarely will someone die for a just person, though maybe for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. This describes God's love for you and for me. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the same grace that came to you when you were helpless is the same grace you and I need to walk out love. You don't come to know Jesus and then, all right, now I'm just, I'm, I'm strong now. No, it's a, it's a complete and utter dependence, a dependency walk with God all the days of our life. While we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly and Christ proves his love for us by dying for us while we were still sinners. Here's one of the ways I like to look at love. Anybody know where this is? Oh yeah, I heard it. Good. Niagara Falls. A couple years ago, before the world went crazy, my family and I and our extended family went on, on vacation. We stopped by Niagara Falls. We did the, bo the, the boat tour. Now, when you're at Niagara, like there's so much water coming down. It is just it, it's just coming. And if you stand up by the river, you're like, oh, this isn't too bad. And the closer you get to the falls, you're like, okay, there's a little bit more mist. You get out in the water and you're a couple hundred yards away and you begin to feel the spray. I decided not to show you the selfie that I took of me and like one of those weird looking poncho type things. It's just hair was weird and all that kind of stuff. But, but you, you're a couple hundred yards away and you're feeling the mist coming off this thing. As the boat gets closer, you're feeling more and more mist. Depending on how that boat driver wants to turn, he can get you really wet if he wants to. I don't think the boats do this, but if you were to go up super close to that water, what you would feel is utter pounding water down upon you. And it just keeps coming, and it just keeps coming, and it just keeps coming. We sang earlier, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. I love the last verse of that. Could we with ink the ocean fill, where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. When you think of God's love, think about an amazing waterfall where the water just keeps coming and it keeps coming. That's how God's love is for you. <laughs> a couple of years ago, my, my, my son Ephraim and I, we were hiking up in uh, a couple hours north of here on one of the trails and marked on this map was a waterfall. And I'm like, let's find the waterfall. We come across this waterfall. This thing was like two feet. <laughs> it, was, it was sad. It was sad. And both of us would go like, is this it? Like, is, is this all there is? Some of us look at God's love and we say, that's all there is. A proper view of God's love is wowed by the immensity. It's wowed by the grace because it just keeps coming and Jesus keeps coming and just keeps coming. It's constant. It's powerful. It's wide reaching. And some of us here today have a picture of love that's very conditional even when we think about God. God's love for you is not conditional. 
God demonstrated his love for you by giving his son. Think about it this way. A friend of mine likes to say, you are worth Jesus to God. The only way that God loves is all in. It's all in. It's, it's all in with patience and kindness and all these things. It's all in with truth. It, it, it's desiring your freedom and my freedom. Freedom to walk without shame, without guilt, without fear before the God who loves and has redeemed you and me. We have all sorts of lies that keep us from this kind of love. Some of our lives are like, our, our lies that we believe are like, I, I'm not worthy. Well, you were helpless, God sent his son. So some of our lies are, I, I, I don't know how to walk out this kind of love. Receive it. Trust the Holy Spirit to walk it out with you. Sometimes when we look at then what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, we, we say, but God, I don't want to. And God says, would you give that to me? And would you allow the immensity of my love, the power of my love, the constant nature of my love to do a work in you that you cannot do yourself? When we struggle to comprehend God's love for us, we will often struggle to extend the same kind of love to another person. If you're having a hard time loving someone in your life, would you go back to God and say, God, would you remind me of the power of your love? the love that sent your son. What do we do when we struggle to love? What do we do when there's a buzzard and we want to just treat him like a buzzard instead of like a brother? Go to the Father. Boldly approach him because of Jesus. Hebrews 4 says that we can come right into his presence because of Jesus. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You just need to go to God and say, God, here I am. Go to the Father and thank him for loving you without condition. Ask him to teach you what that means. Because we all have a past of which we're trying to recover from. Say, Father, what does it mean? Help me understand the depth of your love and how you love me without condition. Thank him for doing that and ask him to reveal himself to you there. If you're struggling to love someone today, maybe they're a friend who you have a fractured relationship with. Maybe they're a son or a daughter. Maybe they're someone who's an enemy in your life. Present that person to God. Say, God, you know my struggle with them. God, help me to love them like you love me. Help me to love them like you love me. Be reminded that God loves them the same way he loves you. All in. All in. Acknowledge to the Father, it's hard for me to love the way that 1 Corinthians 13 describes. But acknowledge your dependence. Say, God, would you help me to walk this out? Because without you, there's absolutely no way I'm walking that out. We're not in this, to, we're not in this alone. We're in this together as a community. We're in this together with God who wants you to know today you are unconditionally loved. And that same unconditional love, he wants you to be a conduit of to the people he has placed in your life and in mine. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, as we turn our hearts now to communion, we're going to celebrate what it means that you have loved us. Thank you, God, for going all in 
You do not love half-heartedly. You do not love in part. You love in complete, utter fullness, something which my mind cannot fully comprehend. But God, I pray that you would help our hearts to understand that, to receive that, so that we can, by your grace and with your help, only with your help, God, that we can walk out this kingdom living principle to love one another just as you have loved us. We pray for your glory and for your fame and for your renown. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.